Welcome to the Besties with Breasties podcast. Sarah Hall here. I am a certified health and wellness coach, athletic trainer, mom, and breast cancer survivor. I help women overcome their own mind drama to make mind shifts that open up the possibility for their most empowered and energetic life. And I am Beth Wilmus, author, speaker, and founder of a human investment organization, otherwise known as a nonprofit called Faith Through Fire. Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. Hey, Sarah. Oh, hey, Beth. How you doing? Oh, just great. Yeah. <laughs> Anything yeah. new? We were talking. Oh. We were talking offline about like what a hot mess we both are today. Yeah, today it's we're on the struggle bus. We are. Maybe on the we're struggle driving bus. the struggle we are bus. Str- <laughs> Some days it comes together very clean and effortlessly, and other days it's a little bit more of a struggle. Today's Today one of those not days. that day. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully with our next guest, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. We don't continue yeah. the trend. Oh, I'm, we're so excited. Today. I I am excited about today. So let's tell our audience what we're going to be talking about today. Yep. So today we're going to talk about disparities in care that exist between white breast cancer patients and those of color. Yeah, so today we have a special guest, Dr. Alanis Hall, and we're going to be talking about some statistics regarding the difference in mortality for white versus black breast cancer patients, the reasons for those differences. And then what we can all do collectively to ensure that all the patients are receiving the best care that they can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So before I introduce Dr. Hall, let's hear from our first sponsor. Okay. Hair loss is consistently ranked as one of the most feared side effects of chemotherapy treatment. The emotional impact chemo hair loss can have on patients has been well documented. Scalp cooling is a simple treatment that can prevent hair loss caused by certain chemotherapy drugs. The use of scalp cooling is proven to be effective in preventing chemotherapy-induced alopecia and can result in people retaining much of their hair. Paxman is the global leader in scalp cooling. Their cold cap is scientifically proven to reduce hair loss during chemotherapy. If you are facing cancer treatment and concerned about losing your hair, Ask your provider about scalp cooling and visit our website at www.coldcap.com. All right, and we are back. So I'm going to introduce our guest today, Dr. Lannis Hall, and then we're going to have like a fun little question that we're going to have for her. That oh, she's yeah, we always share. have to have an icebreaker Woo-hoo. for our doctors. <laughs> yes. So Dr. Hall is Director of Radiation Oncology at Siteman Cancer Center at Barnes Jewish St. Peter's Hospital an associate professor of clinical radiation oncology at Washington University School of Medicine. Since 2006, Dr. Hall has been a member of the Siteman Cancer Center Program to Eliminate Cancer Disparities Leadership Committee, and since 2008, a member of the Disparities Elimination Advisory Committee. Welcome, Dr. Hall. It is great to be here, and I I just wonder if somewhere down the line, we are related. Sarah Hall. Oh, I know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for sure. So Dr. Hall, so we often think about like doctors are just, you know, your doctors and we like to make you a little bit more relatable. So can you share with everybody what is something that potentially patients don't know about you? Ooh. A fun a fun fact. Good icebreaker, Sarah. Well, I mean, maybe two fun facts. I, I used to play a lot of tennis and I grew up on a tennis team in high school where I played number one and I really love to go out and win my lunch money by beating people. (laughs) That competitive (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, I I got a lot of free lunches because I love to play and 
was all city and kind of all regional and that kind of thing for a little while. But probably the the fun fact that I like the most is I like to dance, though I don't get to dance as much. Oh, Ooh, a dancer! I have no rhythm whatsoever. Yeah, no. So I'm already I'm already envious of the. Yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah, <laughs> my my idea of a nightmare is somebody picking me up to take me dancing because then I feel. <laughs> Be more well, let me tell you something. You can learn everything, including learning a little rhythm. Yeah. I <laughs> don't know, Dr. Hall. I don't rhythm know. is not something you're born with or not born with. Though. I don't know. I think, I, think so. I, I, I think you'd give up on me. I think if we had like a dance session, you'd be 15 minutes in and going, yeah, you're hopeless. Voted off the I island. I don't think right. so. I don't think so. Oh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. So as a doctor, do you get a lot of time to dance or play tennis? Neither one. Yeah. <laughs> I bet I bet not. Well, you know, Sarah and I are big advocates of self-care, and that extends to the medical profession, you know? Yeah, for sure. Especially, yeah. especially, especially your, the medical yeah, profession. Yeah, right. Yeah, that compassion fatigue. Well, yeah. I am really excited that you're here, and I think there's a lot to cancer care that people aren't aware of, and I think the topic that we're talking about today, disparities of care, is one of those things. So the number of black and white women being diagnosed with breast cancer is largely the same, right? Yeah, it it really is about the same. And for example, I like to say it in rates, you know, African-American women have a incidence rate of about 126 out of 100,000 and white women have a rate of about 130 out of 100,000. That's really almost the same. So what Mm -hmm. you said is absolutely correct. It's nearly identical, slightly higher in white women than African-American women. And I think that's why it's so interesting that the incidence for African-American women is slightly lower, and yet they still have a 40% higher death rate. And if they're under 50, that mortality can be even double. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it actually, depending on where you are, can be even higher. So, you know, this is Really interesting because if you go back to about 1975, the mortality rate for white women and African American women was really right about the same. But then what you had developed is a whole host of amazing advances in what I call targeted therapy, oral therapies. First came tamoxifen aromatase inhibitors, which are very helpful in treating endocrine responsive tumors. So that's ER positive and PR positive. The most common type of breast cancers that are diagnosed in all women, regardless of ethnic or racial group. And then you had Herceptin, which is another targeted therapy that really benefits a certain subtype of breast cancer that we see in about 15% of women across the board. But triple negative breast cancers also have treatments. They respond very well to chemotherapy, but we don't use targets. But as all targeted therapy, like we use for ER positive and HER2 positive. So there's really like four types of breast cancers and, and three of the four have a target on them that we can either treat with an oral therapy or an infusion of a targeted therapy. And as those therapies were developed and we found, wow, they really work and they changed the whole prognosis of this type of breast cancer, we then saw a divergence in the mortality rates. We, we saw that white women started to have a significant reduction in mortality 
as these therapies became more widely used. In African-American women, their mortality rate did drop, but not nearly at the same rate. Hmm. Since about 1995, there's been a persistent difference in mortality of about 40%, with African-American women having a 40% higher mortality rate than white women. And so the first question you, you might ask is, does that mean that the endocrine therapy doesn't work as well? Or does it mean that the targeted therapy doesn't work as well? Or what's going on here? And it really is multifactorial. But I will say that we can get a lot of data and perspective from states that don't have this 40% more mortality difference between white women and black women. So notice I just said something. When we think in the United States, 40% higher mortality in African-American women compared to white women, we would typically think that that must mean that each state is running the same, around 40% higher African-American mortality rate than white women, but that's not the case. Some states are not doing nearly as well and have higher mortality differences. And some other states hardly have any. So did you hear me? Some states hardly have any difference in mortality between Black and white women. So that kind of tells you that maybe there's something else going on here, that if you live in a state where the mortality difference is only maybe 10% at the most. And when you do a statistical significance, meaning is that really a true difference? It's not even statistically significant. You got to say, wait, what else is going on where we're not really seeing that big difference in outcome in, for example, Massachusetts or Delaware or Connecticut? What's going on in those states where as opposed to Mississippi, Louisiana, Missouri, we're seeing over 50% higher mortality Mm. rate in Black women compared to white women. So I think that's the question that we should dive into if we talk about what is driving these differences in outcome. So I'm, I'm interested to really dive into this because what I'm hearing is that possibly, you know, you said it's multifaceted, the different factors that are contributing to this. So then, you know, social, economic, behavioral factors are what I'm kind of hearing are possible contributors. If you're okay with it, Dr. Hall, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. But before we do that, do you want to do you want to do boobs in the news? Yeah, let's do All it. Right. All right. We're going to do boobs in the news. So Boobs in the News is a fun segment where we read funny tweets from real people or ridiculous news stories. Boobs in the News! Boobs in the News! Boobs in the News! Are you ready for this? I'm ready. You must think this one's funny. You're chuckling. It's funny. I think... Okay. Well, you'll find out why. Okay. Okay. So we all know Girl Scout cookies are a little addictive. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) What's your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Oh, well, I mean, I'm gluten-free, so I I like the toffee ones because they're gluten-free. But if I wasn't gluten-free, the peanut butter ones, which I don't even know what they're called, or the mints, like, they're the best. Hmm. Interesting. Or, no, you know what? The coconut ones. You know what? I really like all of them. Yeah, yeah, I like the (laughs) coconut one. All right, go ahead. Okay. Girl Scout cookies. So, today's silly boob needs to get a hold of himself, really, with his addiction. A 43-year-old guy named Joel, he tried to steal 23 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. What? From the loading dock of a grocery store. Stop it. That's, just to give you some perspective, that's $1,200 worth of cookies. (gasps) That's a lot of cookies. Wait, how many boxes? 23. 
23 boxes is yeah. $1,200? Apparently. No, that can't be right. That math is wrong. That okay. can't be right. Scratch that. That's not in there. Some freaking, there better be some gold like shavings <laughs> on those cookies if that's the case. I wonder if they were like like boxes, oh. not like the box, but like oh, the box that the probably. box comes in. Yeah, that, that would make sense. Okay. But he would have to like back his truck up to it. Anyway, All right, okay, well, we're getting into the nitty gritty here. Yes. Okay. Joel didn't just grab them and go. He took his time to pick and choose his favorite flavors. Okay. Which gave cops enough time. To get there and arrest him. Oh, stop it. I mean, silly. Who's taking stop your time? It. They're all good. Didn't stop we just decide it. that? If you're going to steal, maybe he's don't also gluten free. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I have to have these. <laughs> Do not take your Hold time. Hold on. There's more. Oh, no. Really? In addition to the stolen cookies, the cops found two stolen license plate, a meth pipe, some heroin, and some heroin in Joel's car. So many bad decisions. Okay, you know what? Now it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Now it he makes needed sense. the cookies. So that's bad. right. He had the munchies. <laughs> so bad. Jeez. Oh. oh my gosh. Yeah, Joel, you're a you are you a boob. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Okay. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. Okay, and we're back. So, Dr. Hall, just kind of, we talked about it right before Boobs in the News. What are some of the other factors, the social, economic, or behavioral factors that maybe are contributing to some of these disparities of care in some of these other states? Well, um, we know, for example, that access to care is significant. Having insurance and having the ability to receive care And that has so many barriers, whether that means transportation, having a significant copay, having concerns or distrust of the medical community in general, because maybe you don't have many interactions with the medical community that have been positive. Many people don't recognize that some communities don't even have a healthcare system close to where they live. Mm-hmm. And so seeing uh, uh, healthcare services being delivered on a daily basis because you drive right by it or people work there may not be something that is common to you. And when people do have to go, they go because there's an urgent or emergent situation and the outcomes may not be very well. So you got to kind of think about I've got to get out of my comfort zone and box of how I usually look at medical care, which might be an urgent care center almost every half a mile or mile, and realize that in some communities, there isn't a primary care home that's easy to get to and just access to care. So when we look at states that expanded Medicaid and states that did not expand Medicaid, I mean, there have been a number of studies that have already shown improved outcomes in cancer care in states that expanded Medicaid because now people have access to preventive screenings in early detection in primary care homes. So that tells you off the bat that there's a certain population of people who, who simply cannot engage the healthcare system easily. And that is one reason. And so that leads to what is, if somebody asked a question, what is the main reason that we see a difference in outcomes in in African-American women and white women? And it would, the answer would be stage at presentation. Mm. So meaning regardless of ethnic group or race, if you 
present with early stage disease, and that is disease that is confined to the breast before there is lymph node involvement or before there is disease that had the, the ability to spread to some other organ in the body. So stage one, it is over 90%, regardless of race and ethnic group, and regardless of subtype. Let me say that again. Regardless of race or ethnic group, whether you're Latina or um, Native American, African American or white, if you present with stage one disease, your outcomes are over 90%. That's a five-year survival rate. And now, can I just interject so that people understand when you say subtypes? So African I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say African-American women are disproportionately affected by these aggressive subtypes, right? Right. So triple negative breast cancer, for example, which is considered our most aggressive subtype. Even if you present with stage one disease with triple negative breast cancer, but and you don't have spread to lymph nodes and don't have metastatic disease, your outcomes are over 90% regardless of presentation of subtypes. So whether that means ERPR positive, the most common subtype for all women, or triple negative, which affects about one in 10 white women, but it can affect one out of four African-American women. So 25% versus 10%. So you can see that that is a more common subtype, but I'm saying even if that subtype is found early, the outcomes are excellent. So that tells us right then and there, based on all of our data and all of our analysis, that when you look at stage of presentation, African-American women present with more advanced disease, disease that's more stage three and stage four, and less localized disease, disease at stage one or early stage two. And that is a big issue and big problem because it's harder, obviously, when you have lymph nodes involved or large primary mass in the breast, it is harder to clear all of the malignant cells so that you don't have a recurrence of disease. So what I'm hearing is that prevention is really kind of at the heart of what you're saying, is that you want to make sure that these women understand that prevention and those screening mams um, is... Prevention yeah. and early detection is huge. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the ball game. And, and, and so mammograms are so important, right? And, and, and this is the frustrating part. There's a lot of confusion about when to begin screening, right? Mm -hmm. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says to begin screening at the age of 50 if you're average risk. The American Cancer Society changed their recommendations to 45. But then you have the NCCN, the American College of Breast Surgeons, the Society of Breast Imagers, recommending screening at the age of 40. Siteman Cancer Center strongly recommends starting at the age of 40 because there's a few other differences here. African-American women develop breast cancer on average four to five years earlier, and that trends into a third of African-American women developing breast cancer before the age of 50 and 15% before the age of 45. So just think about mm -hmm. it. If you went to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force screening guidelines, we would miss a whole third of women, African-American, that weren't even given the option to screen because they'd say you were not age appropriate yet. Mm -hmm. So knowing about the differences in onset of disease and then also knowing 
your risk, right? Because if you're high risk, because you have a strong family history, you may need to begin screening at the age of 25. Mm-hmm. So, so, high so it's, it's access to access to care. And then also any maybe fear of of going and getting a screening in case. Well, and it sounds like to me just like probably just confusion. And, you know, if you if if there is any part of you that's like, you know, I'm going to delay this until I have to do it. You know, you're probably more likely to be like, oh, well, they say 50 over there. I mean, I was I was in absolutely no hurry to go get my first mammogram until I felt a lump. And then I asked for my very first one. And that was at the age of 35. Mm -hmm. But I certainly wasn't like lining up to go get my first mammogram. So, (laughs) yeah. So unless somebody's saying this is critically important for for you to go, you're not going to be jumping up and down to do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, then you mentioned something that's important. Let's say you do go and you get screened and they ask you to return for additional images, or let's say you do return and they say, we think that you should have an ultrasound in addition to that and a biopsy. We know that there are then delays, Mm -hmm. delays between a BIRATS 4 or 5, that means an abnormal mammogram that should be addressed with further possible surgical attention. There are delays at that step, and we know that there are delays if that biopsy comes back indicating that there is a malignancy, there are then delays between that particular report and going to see a breast surgeon. So that's when that whole fear factor comes in some mistrust, thinking about, oh, how can I cure this outside of having to go see a physician that maybe I don't feel comfortable with seeing, or I don't have time for this. Mm -hmm. And so we know we also have what is a underlying basis of fear, not saying, let me take care of this. And because I know if I can take care of this, I can get back on my feet and get, get moving again. So I I think that's where you need breast navigators more than ever. Mm. And you need breast navigators in some of our centers where African-American women may frequent more often. We know our academic centers have breast navigators, but that doesn't mean that all of our centers do, even our smaller ones. And that's important. Having someone that's going to call and call and say, hey, I'm going to be with you during this. Get back in here because we need to take care of it. And that's what a navigator does. Yeah. You know? And I think that sometimes patients don't realize too, you mentioned barriers to care. You know, people might be worried about transportation or being able to afford whatever, you know, treatment is. And I think that those navigators in coordination with the hospital social workers, that's their whole mm-hmm. job is to help the patient navigate those waters. And I want Sarah and I talk about it a lot because we want patients to know that you're not by yourself in this. There are, you know, the nurse navigators and the social workers that will sit down and identify your barriers to care and then find ways to get you treated. Mm-hmm. That's um, exactly right. And that brings up Show Me Healthy Women because Show Me Healthy Women is our program throughout the state of Missouri. It's part of a national program that operates in all 50 states and all the territories in the District of Columbia that offers free mammography, mm-hmm. diagnostic mammograms, a biopsy, and then you're enrolled on the Medicaid if you do have a malignancy so that all of your breast cancer treatment is covered. You have to meet some guidelines that are pretty relaxed and that you have to have an income that is not above 200% of the 
poverty level. So many of our navigators really know how to get people on to that program. And that program then gets you insured. We just don't have that for any other disease site other than breast and cervix. We don't have it for prostate, colon, and it has saved a ton of lives. And guess what? It is completely underutilized Mm -hmm. in every county and in every city in St. Louis. We're not even using 10% of, that's the best way to put it, is even 10% of the women that would qualify for this are not using it. Mm. So it is really underutilized. And that is why I want to bring it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's it's right there. And right. it's just it's a matter right there. of women understanding that it's available to them. Mm-hmm. That's right. So every chance I get, I try to just scream to, you know, the mountaintops, show me healthy women, because, you know, women sit there and say, I just don't know how I'm going to do this because I'm uninsured. And there's a program available. So mm-hmm. what's the what's the optimal way for women to get tapped into this resource? I mean, are they is it is it all on you all as the providers or is this is this community education? I mean, what is your thought about how do we get this program utilized more often? It's it's everything. It's it's having marketing dollars. We market it, but what women just need to know. So breast cancer advocacy groups talk about it all the time. The Breakfast Club, Gateway to Hope, Belita's Hope, Pink you know, ribbons. I mean, they, all of these groups know about it and know how to tap into it. But, you know, it's, that doesn't mean that a woman who has a lump in her breast knows about it. Mm. So, you know, saying it today and saying, Hey, if somebody's listening to your podcast saying, Hey, just call 1-866-726-9926. It's for the whole state of Missouri. They will connect you with a provider. Guess what? Mercy, SSM, BJC, all of the Barnes hospitals, including Christian and Mobab, are all part of this. They all mm-hmm. offer it. They all have navigators that know how to pipe you, you know, get you into it. Right. And now now they're potentially not receiving treatment because they don't feel they can afford it. And so now and I mean, it's so not thinking down the line. Right. Because when they present with later stage disease, that means more medical interventions and that costs that costs the healthcare system more. More. And so if you had just accepted the woman into the healthy women's program at the diagnostic stage, you could have avoided all of that. So it's it's such a complicated problem Mm -hmm. with so many different factors and different stakeholders that it can really feel insurmountable. I mean, excellent information, um, and it's good for people to know that that program is out there for sure if they need it and if they qualify. Before we wrap up for today with Dr. Lena's Hall, let's hear from our second sponsor. SSM Health is a proud sponsor of the Besties with Breasties podcast. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. Early detection is key, and keeping up to date on yearly mammograms could be life-saving. At SSM Health, we offer patients in the St. Louis area online scheduling for mammograms, including next-day appointments. Visit ssmhealth.com slash schedule ma'am to make your appointment now. And we're back. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Hall, and sharing your expertise. Any last words for women who have already been diagnosed? We've talked a lot about prevention, a a lot about Mm -hmm. Show Me Healthy Women as an avenue to get good care. What about the woman who has been diagnosed and is really concerned about getting, you know, care and moving beyond this? Yeah, I I even go to surviving, which I consider... 
the part of treatment to thriving, which is after treatment. And, and I would, I would note that it, it really does take a different mindset to move out of the survival mode. It's, you know, with the survival mode, you feel like you're in a fight. Let me get through chemo. Let me get through radiation. Let's get through the surgery. Okay, I'm done. But then you're done. And now it's time to live fully again and not focus on a daily treatment or the side effects of treatment or just making it through treatment or just getting to treatment. And, you know, I think there's the, the emotional and there's the spiritual and then there's the physical. And I would say they, they all are intertwined. And what we have seen here, um, I know at our cancer center, we started massage therapy early on and we really wanted our patients to take advantage of our masseuse and to come in at least twice a month and have massage therapy because we knew that that helped to not just relax you, but also to work out some of the fibrosis and tension that you can have in your back and your shoulders. And that we can see even after radiation in your pec muscle and serratus and latissimus dorsi. So, so having that physical technique of having someone promote massage therapy, and then you do yoga. We offer yoga twice a week. And then we had to pause it because of COVID. We hope to start it back up outside. Yoga also helps with not just breathing, as we all know, but also with sleeping, and it helps for your focus and meditation. So learning how to get back to you, and then learning what can I do to prevent this from recurring. And we have two pretty nice studies, the Nurses Health Study, that clearly show that exercise 150 minutes a week reduces the risk of recurrence in women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and it was moderate intensity exercise. All of that is helpful to reducing your risk long-term in our thriving population, along with we want five to nine fruits and vegetables each day to just really get you back into a mode of eating antioxidants that are good on a cellular level. So I would just say there's a lot that still can be done that you can do outside of the medications that you might be taking long-term, if you have an endocrine responsive breast cancer where you're taking a tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor. And I, I see that when people really exercise routinely and they focus on their diet and do some of the meditating that we talk about and guided imagery, it really does help you to get into that thriving and, hey, I'm past this mode. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we could agree anymore if we tried. (laughs) I mean, Sarah and I are huge proponents of, you know, we we like to say that sometimes it feels like the healing process really starts after active treatment ends Mm -hmm. because then that's when the patient really has the responsibility to take care of themselves holistically through exercise, through good nutrition, yeah. through good mental health care. Self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, it's nice to hear you as a doctor kind of validate that and mm-hmm. that you see differences in patients who have that versus the patients that don't. I mean, I'm yeah. assuming that's the case or else you wouldn't be promoting it. <laughs> we have good data around it. And I can just I can just tell you on just looking at our patients who even just exercise, it makes a huge difference. Unfortunately, so many of these medications cause weight gain. 
And so just even maintaining your weight makes women feel so much better. And it just helps with, you know, just trying to recover sexually too. So all of that is, is, is important. I'm glad we're on the same page. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to talk to us about these disparities in care, great information. And Mm -hmm. we really appreciate all the work that you do. Oh, well, I thank you for having me. You all are doing a fantastic job. Aww. I love I, <laughs> I love the humor in it. And I, I hope you you get a broader reach because it's needed. Yes. Yeah. Well, we want to get in the ears of all the breast cancer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we want to bother everybody. <laughs> well, okay. right. You're on your way. Next time, we're going to be speaking with a therapist regarding the possible differing emotional needs of black women as they go through their care. All right. Until next time, guys. See ya. Bye. If you are a breast cancer survivor and you love Besties with Breasties, make sure you join our survivorship support network at faiththroughfire.org to gain access to exclusive episodes that are ad-free and uncensored.